Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. I'm reading Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Jerusalem, in Israel, and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob even though he brings nothing to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you floor the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offering or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, dies violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. I just pray as Steve comes up. Lord, I pray that you open our eyes and our soul to your Lord, to your word, Lord, and I pray that you will revive inside of us the desire to get to know you better and be closer to you, Lord, by your word and by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Prisca. Good afternoon. Good to be with you all. Um, We're looking at Malachi 2, it's the next one in our series, and uh, the title is The Importance of Family Life. Uh, My slightly lighter title is Christianity's Unique View of Sex, Marriage, Singleness, Celibacy, and Divorce. So strap yourselves in, okay? The biblical view of sex and marriage has always been at odds with the world. It was true in the ancient world, it's true in the modern world. In the ancient world, there were two views. The the conservative view was that marriage is a contract and made you legitimate as a person. To be somebody in the ancient world, you had to be married. To not be married was not to be a somebody. So your value as a human in the ancient world did not come from what you achieved personally. Your value as a human came from the role you played in the community. And the primary role, especially if you were a woman, was to get married, produce heirs, and contribute to the increase and flourishing of the community. In fact, men, ancient and in cultures today, were often polygamists because increasing the tribe was really what mattered. In that paradigm, marriage was nothing more than a social contract, and sex was wrapped up in that with the primary role of sex being procreation, the extending of the tribe. 
In the ancient world, the liberal view was that sex was for self-fulfillment or self-expression. For example, the historian Tom Holland, in his magnificent book, Dominion, which traces how the Christian teaching of the Bible, particularly Jesus and the Apostle Paul, have shaped the Western mind today, he, in his part of his book, says this, sex was nothing if not an exercise of power. As captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used sexually were to the Roman man. To be penetrated, male or female, was to be branded as inferior, to be marked as womanish, barbarian, servile. In Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did use the side of the road as a toilet. In Latin, the same word meal meant both ejaculate and urinate. So in this view, Holland is maybe the greatest Roman popular historian we have today, sex is an appetite that I must satisfy. Sex is a way of expressing myself. Sex is about self-fulfillment. For the Roman men, sex was about power, dominance, and achievement. And marriage was separated from sex. It was, it was in fact normal and expected that Rome, powerful Roman men who were married would have regular sex with other people who weren't their wife, whether men, women, or younger boys. So how does identity formation work in the liberal view in the ancient, uh, in the liberal view? Well, instead of self-sacrifice, you have self-assertion. Instead of fulfilling my role in the community, you have pursuing personal freedom. Instead of uh, uh, producing offspring, it's about my individual achievement. Make my mark in the world and have the community around me affirm my personally chosen identity. So identity formation was self-assertion. So they're the two views of sex and marriage and identity formation, those two views are very much dominant in today's world in different parts of the world. In, in our city, it's the liberal view. The conservative view, though, is marriage is a social contract to give you legitimacy as a person with the function of sex being procreation to conform to the desires of the wider community. The liberal view, sex, is self-fulfillment and self-expression, with marriage as an optional extra, as an optional extra, and as long as you conform to your, not your wider community desires, your internal desires. And guess who both these views favoured in the ancient world? Powerful men. And guess who both these views discriminated against in the ancient world? Women. And to this world, Christianity came with a radically different view of marriage and sex. The view had its roots all the way back in the beginning in Genesis 2, where God created men, uh, male and female, equal, both in his image, both with dignity and respect. And we read the most famous verses ever written about marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife are both naked and they felt no shame. There's equality, there's vulnerability, there's confidence, they're fully known, they're fully secure. And notice how marriage, leaving father and mother and being united, marriage, and sex, becoming one flesh, are tied together. The physical union of sex, the physical one fleshness, represents a deeper union and oneness in the couple. One in mind, one in body, one in soul, one in spirit, legally one, financially one. Sex, one flesh was a sign and a seal and a bearer and a bringer of that oneness. 
The oneness said, I'm giving myself exclusively and unreservedly to you and no one else to form a partnership under God for his glory, the good of humanity, and for personal joy. In this view, sex was not about self-expression and self-fulfillment. It was about self-donation of giving myself again and again and again to another, of reaffirming my marriage vows. Sex is the body's way of remaking the marriage vows, of giving yourself once again fully, completely, unreservedly to another and to the good and well-being of another. And in that unity of self-sacrifice and lifelong self-donation, sex was for procreation, for bringing children into the world to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Jesus would pick up and expound this view from Genesis 2 when speaking to powerful men in his day. The Pharisees in Matthew 19 come to him and ask a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2 and says, in the beginning, God's intentions that man and wife would live out their earthly lives faithfully towards one another in marriage. Because, verse 6... They're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees then ask, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24, well, why did Moses permit that a man could divorce his wife? Listen to Jesus' reply, verse 8. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus makes it clear, super clear. God's design is for marriage to be lifelong and only exception is when there's sexual immorality within the couple or unfaithfulness. Now look how odd Jesus' view is. Not in the modern world, we'll come to that. In the ancient world, particularly amongst powerful men. The chosen disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. If this is Jesus' sexual ethic, that marriage is to be lifelong and the only option for divorce is sexual unfaithfulness, well, it's too hard. Better not to marry. Do you see, the men couldn't treat women as they liked and divorce them based on aversion, incompatibility, or inconvenience. Jesus says, no, women are equals in marriage and marriage is for life. The apostle Paul would reiterate the message of equality, consent, and mutuality within Christian marriage when he wrote to the licentious and liberal Corinthian church who'd swallowed wholeheartedly the Roman attitude to sex and marriage. These words were utterly unheard of in ancient history. It's where we get the idea of consent from the Apostle Paul. And he puts men and women on a par and he says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. At this point, the powerful men in the ancient world are going, yes, yes. In the same way, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Glenn Shrivener, who has done a nice sort of summary, if you don't want to read the big Tom Holland book, and he is a Christian. Holland is sympathetic, but not a professing Christian. Uh, the air we breathe. He compares the, the first century sexual revolution of Jesus and the apostles with the 20th century revolution, uh, sexual revolution. And he said, if the revolution of the 20th century said women can be as free as men, the Jesus revolution said men must be as restricted as women. 
Given the complete sexual dominance of men in the ancient world, the coup was as audacious as it was transformative. And notice something else, completely revolutionary. The next bit of 1 Corinthians 7 I just read, Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul talks about each of us having gifts, some the gift of marriage and some the gift of singleness. Paul is single and he wishes everyone was single like he was. Now this is stupendous. To be single in the ancient world was not an option. If you're a man, you want to have uh, a woman, you want to get married, to have heirs. If you're a woman, you want to marry as high as you can, the, the chain. But Paul only said that because this is what Jesus had taught. Back to Matthew 19, Matthew 19. I know we're jumping about, but how does Jesus continue the conversation with the dumbfounded disciples who cannot get their heads around such a strange view of sex and marriage? And divorce is the only option for sexual immorality. Jesus said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given, the gift. For there were eunuchs, eunuchs in the ancient world were the celibates of their day. There were eunuchs who were born that way, and there were eunuchs who had been made eunuchs by others, and there were those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus is saying that marriage is not for everyone. For others, singleness and celibacy is a way of life. Some have the gift of marriage. Some have the gift of singleness and celibacy. Some choose this way of life. Some don't get to choose it. It's just how life falls. Don't miss the significance of this. In the ancient world, there was no life outside of a married life. But Jesus, as the most fulfilled human being who ever lived, who never had sex or got married, says you can have a fulfilled, joyful, satisfying complete life as someone who is single and celibate. This must have seemed impossible and like a fairy tale for the women who had little value outside of getting married and bearing children. Whether singleness and celibacy are chosen or not, it is a viable and positive option within the kingdom of God, a message that is still as countercultural as it's ever been, though for different reasons we'll look at in a minute. You don't have to have sex and be in a relationship to be a fulfilled human being living your best life. Do you see? You can go back to the ancient world, you can come right up to date with the modern world, and what will you find? The biblical view of sex, marriage, divorce, singleness, and celibacy is always countercultural work for different reasons. On the one hand, the conservative view that marriage and sex are only social contracts is challenged by the Bible's teaching on monogamy, the rights of women, and that sex is not just about procreation, but joyful union of husband and wife. The Bible's sex ethic limits men's power. The sociologist and historian Rodney Stark, again, not a, a sympathetic, but not a believer, like Holland, wondered aloud why every woman who ever heard about Christianity in the ancient world didn't become a Christian. Because for the first time in the history of the world, it was the church that became a place of dignity, protection, and provision for women, especially widows. On the other hand, the liberal view that sex is about self-expression and self-fulfillment and marriage is an optional extra is challenged by the Bible's teaching that sex is really about self-donation and to be expressed within the covenant of marriage where there is safety, nakedness, and no fear of shame, desertion, or abandonment, and where children can be born and cared for. Whereas the conservative view was challenged by limiting men's power, the liberal view is challenged by limiting our desire for self-fulfillment and personal gratification. And by the way, the fact that the Bible's sex 
The Bible's sex ethic is challenged by both the right and the left at different points in history for different reasons in different cultures. Still to this day is an argument that the Bible really is authoritative. If the Bible is the world of God and not just a projection of human ideas, that we should, we should expect it to challenge all cultures at some point. If the Bible fitted into one culture, one moment, one geography and one political view, it would just be the projection of human thought at that time. But if it did and continues to challenge all cultures at some point, that might point to its objectivity. That the source behind the scriptures is one that stands outside of all time and all cultures. That it doesn't live within its own self-fulfilling and self-accrediting echo chamber. Well done for staying with me. You're going, what about Malachi chapters 2, Steve? I'm glad you ask. Malachi 2 addresses two problems in the 5th century B.C., again, were countercultural for the people to hear. The first problem, the men are marrying foreign women and following foreign gods, verse 11. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. The issue was not racial. God has no problem with interracial marriages, as is testified with the wonderful example of marriage of Boaz, the Israelite, with the Moabite Ruth, But in that case, Ruth famously said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, that she'd forsaken the Moabite god, Chemosh, and was giving her allegiance to Israel's god, Yahweh, who we just sang about. The issue isn't racial marriage, but marriage into a different religion. Because to do that would mean one partner has to compromise on issues of worship. Sadly, in Israel's history, that had been played out time and time again as Israel married with the nations and were led astray to false idols and away from the living God. I've seen this time and time again with Christians who marry non-Christians. There are a few cases where the non-believer is won over, but for the few occasions where this happens, I can tell you dozens where the Christian slips away from Jesus. Malachi wants God's people to marry those who worship the same God and are part of the same people of God. Paul himself would again say the same to the Corinthian church, not to be yoked together with unbelievers. And in another place, speaking to widows about what they should do, he says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. Ah, but he must belong to the Lord. So Paul insists that we must marry those who belong to the Lord. If you want to reflect on this more, do read Kathy Keller's superb article, Don't Take It From Me, Reasons You Should Not Marry an Unbeliever. Not easy to hear, I know, but you need to hear it. Malachi 2, the word of God. Problem one, marrying non-believers. Problem two, the men are divorcing their wives out of convenience. Verse 13 tells us that the people of God are frustrated and annoyed with God for not answering their prayers and responding to their offerings. And they flood the Lord's altar with tears and go, why, why are you not answering us favorably, God? And God answers, verse 14, it's because the Lord is a witness. The Lord is seeing something between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. In verse 16, God says, it's a tricky verse to translate, but the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, uh, the, the, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. It's a tricky verse, but the thrust is this. Divorcing a woman in the ancient world was a gross injustice, which, like the blood of a murdered victim, leaves their marks, scars, and damage. It left the woman vulnerable, unprotected, and undignified. It defiled her character. The husband should be careful 
and caring to their wives. The husbands should honor and protect their wives, not expose them and denigrate them. So Malachi, speaking five centuries before Christ and the apostles, and speaking hundreds of years after Genesis 2 and the original uh, marriage that we were given, once again brings a countercultural message to his time that aligns with all of the scriptures. We're not to marry those that don't worship the same God, and we're not to divorce on grounds of aversion, incompatibility, and inconvenience. But why? Verse 14 says the Lord is a witness. A witness of what? A marriage covenant. Marriage is not a social contract alone on earth. That's what it is today, isn't it? Just a social contract. Nor is it just a means for personal fulfillment. It is a covenant before Almighty God. In verse 10, he talks about how God is a creator and a father of both husband and wife. So the covenant husband and wife make together is witnessed. When you get married and you say there's marriage, you're witnessed by Almighty God. So there are not two parties, there are always three in Christian marriage. The couple make a covenant to each other with the Lord as their witness. So to break up their marriage with divorce or to marry a non-believer was against the Lord's will because it affects your relationship with God who is at the heart of your marriage. In the case of the Old Testament, that was why God was not answering their prayers. He was acting as a witness against this casual practice of divorce. And a similar message is picked up by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.7 where he says, husbands, you need to treat your wives with respect so that God will answer your prayers and hear them. Malachi then goes on to give another reason why God is against divorce. He says, has not the Lord God made you one? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. God wants godly offspring. Christian marriage is to bring Christian children into the world. The family was intended to be the school in which God's way of life was learned and practiced. So whether you divorce each other and leave children split between two parents, or you marry a non-believer, it will undermine one of the key reasons for Christian marriage to produce godly offspring. But there's another reason why divorce is against God's design. The Old Testament only gave hints and shadows of this, but the apostle brings the full an ultimate purpose of sex and marriage into the light. When again, quoting Genesis 2, he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Human marriage is ultimately pointing to the greater marriage of God and the bride, Christ and the church. It is a profound mystery. But what we know in that mystery is that God never breaks the covenant. And when we break it, he will shed his blood to ensure he can maintain marriage to us. When husband and wife commit to one another unreservedly in sacrificial love, they are demonstrating, giving a picture to the world of the commitment of God eternally in Christ for us. So marriage is a picture pointing to the faithful and eternal love of God for his people. And that's how the story ends. Revelation 19 and 21, the marriage of Christ and his church, the marriage of heaven and earth, the reuniting, the making one, the one flesh of sex is pointing to this oneness of Christ and the church and heaven and earth being reunited. Believe it or not, that's what it's all about. It's a mystery, Paul says. And forever we will sing of his eternal and sacrificial love for us. Earthly marriage will no longer be required in heaven because its job as a signpost to the eternal marriage will now be obsolete. 
We will all be married to our covenant-making God through Christ forever. But when husband and wife divorce each other in this life, they destroy the picture. And they sow seeds of doubt into all our minds. Well, maybe God will rescind his love for me too. Maybe God will give up on me too. Maybe God will revoke his covenant with me too. So divorce is so lamentable because it, it ruins the picture of an unending love and faithfulness that God has for you and I, the church. What I've just taught from Genesis to Malachi to Jesus to Paul to Revelation, the biblical view of sex, marriage, singleness, celibacy and divorce is and always has been countercultural. Some people will think I am mad for preaching such a sermon at this time of year in Dublin. It's just how the sermon series fell. Some will think I'm homophobic. Others will think I'm bigoted. Others will think I'm narrow-minded and full of hatred. What I believe is countercultural, but I think the scriptures have always been countercultural. And just for the record, just for the record, I do not fear or hate anyone who practices or has a different view of me when it comes to sex and marriage. Many of my friends would be laughing if they heard this sermon now, but they would still be my friends. But if you're a follower of Jesus or you are considering or trying to figure out well, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and abide by what the Bible says about sex and marriage, how do we apply Malachi to? Well, he finishes, doesn't he, by saying, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So what does it mean for you and I to be on our guard and to be faithful to God and his design for sex and marriage? What well, a big picture, big picture application. Be on your guard. What does it mean? It means are you willing to be different in this generation at this time? Not to swallow the philosophies and practices of the world around you, to be distinct, to create a counterculture, for us to be a Christian community that is models something different. People will think you're crazy, and they always have thought the Christian church and its views were crazy. What does it mean for you specifically, personally, to be on your guard and be faithful? Well, let's go through the list. If you're happily married, keep investing in your marriage. Make sure sexual intimacy is a priority, as it is commitment apparatus to help you remain united and to help your marriage remain tender and strong. And as God brings children along, raise them in the faith. If you're, I, I don't, you know, if you're unhappily married, work at your marriage. Seek help. Don't give up. Make the necessary changes to make your marriage work. Divorce is the last option according to the scriptures and only allowable in cases of sexual immorality for Jesus and desertion, Paul adds which my mind would include abuse, which of course means immediate separation. That's vital. But even in unhappy marriages, and even when there is unfaithfulness, all opportunities for forgiveness and reconciliation should be considered before divorce. Well, what if you are divorced? Are you written off by God? No. There's always second chances. But now you've had this teaching... Consider what it means to live a single and celibate life. And if you're considering remarriage, get the practical and biblical counsel and advice you need before you move forward a second time. If you're married to a non-Christian, are you ridden off by God? No. You are where you are. And you're called to love, serve, witness, and pray for the spouse that you're married to 
in the hope that God will grant them repentance and open their eyes to the glories of Christ. The New Testament speaks to your situation two or three times. So love your spouse as Christ has loved you. If you're single, three things. Or if you're dating. Don't think if you're single that you're in a lesser or waiting state and that the goal of life is marriage and that then you'll be complete, legitimate and fulfilled as a person. You are complete, legitimate and fulfilled as a person because of Christ. Not your status as a single or married person. So use your singleness well to serve the Lord and serve others and commit to celibacy as hard as it is and as strange as it is in today's sexualized culture. Commit to celibacy. If you're single and you want to get married or you're dating and you want to get married, fine. But firstly, don't compromise on what you look for in a spouse. The primary thing we should look for in a potential spouse is not physical attraction, but character. And character that is built on the word and the love of God. Aim to find a marriage partner who will help you follow Christ, that you can raise children together on the foundation of Christ. Don't make the mistake of giving into superficial attraction. Look below the surface at the heart. And if you think marriage will solve all your problems and completely complete you, it will cause as many problems as it solves. There is a wonderful oneness in marriage. We've just been learning about it. But that oneness can drive you mad. And I'm happily married. Because it limits you and it frustrates you and it can... Don't get married for the wrong reasons. Get married for the right reasons. To glorify Jesus, to serve another human being in becoming like Jesus and to raise children to follow Jesus. Finally, if you're single and celibate, not by choice, but because you're same-sex attracted and heterosexual marriage is not an option for you if you align with this view of the Scriptures. Or maybe there's another reason. Know that God has a special, special, special place for you within his kingdom. In Matthew 19, moments after speaking about those that were not going to get married, whether by choice or not, Jesus says to them in Matthew 19, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, at the oneness of all things, when all this mystery of marriage and sex is finally culminated with the oneness of Christ and his church in heaven and earth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on your twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or fields or, potentiality or potential spouses, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. For many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. In other words, when you decide to put Jesus first and you put this teaching of the scriptures into your life and it has a cost on your life, whatever we give up for Jesus in this temporary world, and it is temporary and it is short, will be made up a hundredfold in the world to come. The ultimate relationship our hearts desires, the ultimate marriage we were all made for is with Christ in the world to come. Don't forfeit that happiness and joy for fleeting pleasures and a challenging cross to carry in this world. It's a tough message. It's countercultural. I'm not sure how you feel or what you think as we come to the end of it. I was trying to think, how do I wrap up a sermon like this? Well, here's how we do it, don't we? I'm talking about Christ and the church. We all have a new identity in Jesus. That's where we start. If you listen to this teaching and you think, Steve, I've made a mess of it. 
I've made an absolute mess of it so far. You have a new identity in Christ. You have a clean start. Your past doesn't define you. Jesus defines you. Patrick's story is a version of that. Don't worry. New identity in Christ. Start again. Maybe you go, Steve, this is, I, I, I can't get my head around this. I, it, it, everything in my inner being, everything in my mind, everything in the culture says the opposite. That you have a new identity. Sexual activity and relational status doesn't define you. Jesus defines you. You have a new identity in him. Maybe you think, oh, I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to be, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. And I've got all these pressures. And, 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 well, you have a new family in that new identity. And the church, we're not perfect. But it's the only eternal family. It's going to last forever, the, the, the Christian family. All earthly families will fade away, but the Christian one won't. We want to support you. We want to stand with you. We don't want to judge you. We want to come alongside you. Maybe you think, Steve, I just can't. It's too hard. Well, then you have a new hope, don't you, in this new identity. All your desires will be satisfied and a hundredfold. And just waiting and putting Jesus' views and Jesus' standard first in your life, it'll just be like two weeks before the honeymoon. And it's sometimes hard to wait. But in the context of eternity, two weeks. Ah, don't forfeit. Maybe you go, Steve, I just can't. I just can't have the, I haven't got the power, I, haven't, I can't resist the friends, I can't resist this. I can't. Well, you have the Holy Spirit in this new identity and he wants to empower you. So whatever you're taking from this message, whatever you're, however it sits with you now, we come back to this is a profound mystery. It's all about a new identity in Jesus and learning to live that out. And so we're going to sing a song that talks about running into his arms and knowing his love afresh. So would you stand with me? I'll invite the band back. We'll have a moment to be silent, and then I'll pray. Just take a moment, maybe just close your eyes, and just consider what is your takeaway from this. And how has the Holy Spirit been prodding you through this message? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love, your unending faithfulness, your deep compassion and passion for each of us. And we thank you that you came for each of us as the bride coming for the, as the groom coming for the bride. And we thank you that you want to know us each personally. You want to fulfill us. You want to satisfy us. You want to complete us. You want to take us to a world which all our hearts desire and of which sex and marriage in this world is just a little foretaste and picture. And I pray today, Lord, you'll have renewed our minds as to understand afresh just what a great gift sex and marriage and singleness and celibacy are and how they can all help us know you better. I pray for my brothers and sisters here and I pray for those who are considering things of the Christian faith here that you would help us all to know how to apply these truths to our lives and to find friends and, and Christian community that will support us as we consider these things. Lord, we're so grateful for your forgiveness. We're so grateful for that fresh start. We're so grateful for the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're so thankful for this moment just to be together and be honest and reflect on your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.